Hello, this is Michael Schatz, Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology in Practice. It is my pleasure to present to you the highlights of our October 2021 issue. The theme of this issue is vaccines, and we thank former editorial board member John Kelso and current editorial board member John Ziegler for serving as coordinators for this theme. The lead article is a CME-eligible review on the extremely timely subject of SARS-CoV-2 vaccines. This comprehensive review covers vaccine platforms and mechanisms of action, existing and novel vaccine technologies, efficacy and effectiveness data, policy and regulatory issues, and future directions. Of particular importance to the allergy immunology community is the topic of allergic reactions to SARS-CoV-2 vaccines, and a special article presents a systematic review, meta-analysis, grade assessment, and international consensus approach to the evaluation of patients considered to be at higher risk of allergic vaccine reactions. Two additional valuable COVID-19 vaccine-related articles are next, one on the topic of vaccine hesitancy and how the allergist can help, and one that focuses on the patients we treat with common variable immunodeficiency in relationship to SARS-CoV-2 vaccines and the risk of chronic COVID-19. Following these COVID-19 vaccine articles are two CME-eligible reviews on other particularly relevant subjects, the evaluation of adverse vaccine reactions in general and an update on influenza vaccines. Finally, regarding the vaccines theme, an insightful theme editorial was contributed by coordinators John Kelso and John Ziegler that does a terrific job of summarizing and contextualizing these theme review articles. The October 2021 issue review and feature articles also include an important American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology workgroup report on the topic of oral food challenges for FPIs and an interesting article regarding the clinical relevance of pollen versus fungal spores in allergic diseases. Now I would like to present the highlights of the original articles in the October issue, which are on the subjects of COVID-19, asthma, drug allergy, food allergy, hereditary angioedema, immunodeficiency, insect sting allergy, and rhinitis and sinusitis. The first article is Asthma Disease Status, COPD, and COVID-19 Severity in a Large Multi-Ethnic Population by Huang et al. What is already known about this topic? Past studies evaluating asthma and COVID-19 severity have had inconsistent findings and lack consideration of asthma disease status. What does this article add to our knowledge? Increased risks for severe COVID-19 outcomes were observed for asthma patients who required recent clinical care, but not for those who did not require clinical care. Medication treatment for asthma appeared to lower this risk. How does this study impact current management guidelines? These findings suggest that asthma patients, especially those who require clinical care, should continue taking control medications during the COVID-19 pandemic. 
The next article is Penicillin Allergy Label Increases Risk of Worse Clinical Outcomes in COVID-19 by Kaminsky et al. What is already known about this topic? In COVID-19, antibiotic use is common. Penicillin allergy is prevalent and affects antibacterial treatment options, risking poorer response to treatment and increased side effects. What does this article add to our knowledge? In COVID-19, penicillin allergy is associated with increased risks for worse outcomes, including hospitalization, intensive care requirement, acute respiratory failure, and mechanical ventilation. How does this study impact current management guidelines? Patients with penicillin allergy could be prioritized as a higher risk group for COVID-19 for the development of risk mitigation strategies, including antibiotic stewardship programs to minimize unnecessary antibiotic use in these patients. The next article is Pragmatic Randomized Controlled Trial for Stepping Down Asthma Controller Treatment in Patients Controlled with Low-Dose Inhaled Corticosteroid and Long-Acting Beta-2 Agonist by Kim et al. What is already known about this topic? The optimal step-down strategy remains unclear in well-controlled patients receiving low-dose inhaled corticosteroids and long-acting beta-2 agonists. What does this article add to our knowledge? Two current guideline-recommended step-down strategies are not non-inferior to maintaining treatment in patients well-controlled with low-dose inhaled corticosteroid and long-acting beta-2 agonist treatment. A higher rate of patients experience loss of control six months after step-down. How does this study impact current management guidelines? Step-down can be attempted when patients are stable, but appropriate monitoring and supervision are necessary with precautions for loss of control. The next article is FEF 25 to 75% is a more sensitive measure reflecting airway dysfunction in patients with asthma. A comparison study using FEF 25 to 75% and FEV 1% by Quinn et al. What is already known about this topic? An abnormal FEF 25 to 75% value indicative of small airway dysfunction has been proposed as a risk factor contributing to asthma development and progression. What does this article add to our knowledge? FEF 25 to 75% is more sensitive at reflecting airway hyperresponsiveness, inflammation, and disease severity as compared with FEV 1% in patients with asthma, in particular in those with small airway dysfunction who present with normal FEV 1%. How does this study impact current management guidelines? Our data suggests that monitoring FEF 25 to 75% in asthmatic patients with small airway dysfunction who present with normal FEV 1% has relevance as a primary clinical outcome in disease management. The next article is Real-World Assessment of Asthma Specialist Visits among U.S. patients with severe asthma by most et al. What is already known about this topic? The 2007 guidelines of the U.S. National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute 
recommend that patients with severe asthma be referred to an asthma specialist, such as an allergist or pulmonologist, for systematic assessment or co-management. What does this article add to our knowledge? Asthma specialist care appeared to be underutilized by commercially insured U.S. patients with severe asthma, with only 38% having an observed specialist visit within two years. How does this study impact current management guidelines? There is a need to increase specialist consultation or co-management for patients with severe asthma. This can be aided by recognizing patient characteristics associated with a reduced likelihood of specialist visits. The next article is Improving Asthma Symptoms Among Inner-City Women During Pregnancy, a Prospective Cohort Intervention by you et al. What is already known about this topic? Asthma exacerbations are common during pregnancy, and self-management education can be effective in reducing the unpredictable variability of asthma control in this population. What does this article add to our knowledge? Our study expands current knowledge by demonstrating the benefits of an integrated subspecialty care model on objective measurements of asthma control in an understudied population of urban minority pregnant women. How does this study impact current management guidelines? Our results inform prenatal care algorithms for pregnant women with asthma and elucidate opportunities to improve the quality of asthma management for a vulnerable population. The next article is Associations of Snoring and Asthma Morbidity in the School Inner-City Asthma Study Population by Gunlogson et al. What is already known about this topic? Asthma and sleep-disoriented breathing are associated conditions with a bi-directional relationship. They are common in childhood and disproportionately affect those of minority race and ethnicity. What does this article add to our knowledge? It expands the knowledge of the association of asthma and sleep-disordered breathing assessed by report of snoring frequency in relation to asthma morbidity and healthcare utilization among school-aged children of minority racial and ethnic background. How does this study impact current management guidelines? Report of snoring frequency is easily assessed and can identify those at risk for worse asthma morbidity and increased healthcare utilization. Given the variation in snoring frequency over time, repeated assessments of snoring should be performed. The next article is Specialist Care in Individuals with Asthma Who Required Hospitalization, a Retrospective Population-Based Study by Ken Zerska et al. What is already known about this topic? Individuals who are at risk for severe asthma exacerbations should receive specialist care. However, the care pattern for such patients in the real world is unclear. What does this article add to our knowledge? We described the pattern of care among individuals with asthma who required hospitalization and identified factors associated with receiving asthma specialist care. How does this study impact current management guidelines? Living in a rural area or a low-income neighborhood 
was the strongest factor associated with a reduced likelihood of receiving specialist care. This suggests that access to care is an important barrier to receiving the recommended care. The next article is Urticaria, the 111 Criterion for Optimized Risk Stratification in Beta-Lactam Allergy Delabeling by Sabato et al. What is already known about this topic? Low-risk patients can benefit from delabeling based on direct challenges. However, there is still no consensus about the risk status to assign to patients who have experienced an urticarial eruption associated with beta-lactam treatment. What does this article add to our knowledge? An urticarial eruption appearing within one hour after the first dose and with a maximal duration of one day is significantly more frequently observed in patients with a positive skin test or serum-specific IgE assay. How does this study impact current management guidelines? Patients who meet the 111 criterion are not eligible for a direct challenge, but should be referred for prior skin tests and serum-specific IgE measurement. The next article is Improvement in Health-Related Quality of Life in Food Allergic Patients, a Meta-Analysis by Sao et al. What is already known about this topic? Food allergy can affect patients' health-related quality of life, owing to increased anxiety and social and economic restrictions. In recent studies, oral immunotherapy, OIT, and oral food challenges, OFC, have been shown to be associated with improving patients' quality of life. What does this article add to our knowledge? Both OIT and OFC were significantly associated with improved quality of life. Five OIT studies found a significant improvement in quality of life in the OIT group compared with the placebo group. How does this study impact current management guidelines? Our study underscores the potential benefits of OIT and OFC in improving patients' quality of life, which should be considered when balancing the pros and cons of treatment in clinical practice. The next article is Characterizing Biphasic Food-Related Allergic Reactions Through a U.S. Food Allergy Patient Registry by Gupta et al. What is already known about this topic? The incidence of biphasic food-related allergic reactions ranges from 1 to 20% of anaphylactic reactions. Most of these estimates come from individuals undergoing oral food challenges or physician-confirmed biphasic anaphylaxis. What does this article add to our knowledge? This study provides valuable data on respondent-reported biphasic food-related allergic reactions that will inform patients and families about the probable severity of a biphasic response depending on the reported initial reaction severity. How does this study impact current management guidelines? Patient education on biphasic food-related allergic reactions should consider the individual's initial reaction severity. The next article is Clinical Predictors and Outcomes of Oral Food Challenges Illustrate Differences Among Individual Tree Nuts by Shu et al. What is already known about this topic? 
Tree nuts are common food allergens and have a higher likelihood of triggering a severe reaction compared with other food allergens. Little is known regarding differences between tree nut allergenicity and decision point thresholds for individual tree nuts. What does this article add to our knowledge? Patients are more likely to pass almond and hazelnut challenges than cashew or walnut. How does this study impact current management guidelines? Almond and hazelnut could be challenged more aggressively, and cashew and walnut challenged more conservatively. The next article is Detection of Food Allergens in School and Home Environments of Elementary Students by Masiag et al. What is already known about this topic? Food allergen proteins are detectable in table wipes and vacuumed floor samples in inner-city U.S. elementary schools. What does this article add to our knowledge? Milk, egg, peanut, and tree nut allergens are readily detectable in environmental samples from U.S. elementary schools, but at lower levels than in students' homes. How does this study impact current management guidelines? Further investigation is needed to determine the clinical implications and possible impact on school policies. The next article is Lanadelumab Efficacy, Safety, and Injection Interval Extension in Hereditary Angioedema, a real-life study by Butgerite et al. What is already known about this topic? Recently, the monoclonal antibody against calocrine, lanadelumab, was approved for the prophylaxis of hereditary angioedema attacks. It showed very good efficacy in clinical trials. In patients who are attack-free, dose reductions can be considered. What does this article add to our knowledge? Outside of clinical trials, lanadelumab was safe and effective in larger cohorts of patients with hereditary angioedema and acquired C1 inhibitor deficiency. Moreover, our protocol for extending injection intervals improved disease control and quality of life. How does this study impact current management guidelines? The presented approach for the extension of injection intervals of lanadelumab should be considered early on because it can minimize the burden of therapy without losing efficacy. The next article is Diversity in Serine, Threonine, Protein Kinase 4 Deficiency and Review of the Literature by Cagdis et al. What is already known about this topic? Serine threonine kinase 4, STK4, deficiency is an autosomal recessive combined immunodeficiency characterized by cutaneous viral infections, recurrent pneumonia, and atopy like dedicator of cytokinesis protein 8, DOC8 deficiency. What does this article add to our knowledge? Intermittent neutropenia and rheumatic features, such as leukocytoclastic vasculitis, lupus, and amyloidosis, are common in STK4 deficiency. Increased effector memory T-cells and significantly increased plasma blasts may be causative for autoimmunity in the disease. How does this study impact current management guidelines? Antimicrobial prophylaxis and monthly immunoglobulins are the mainstays of the therapy. 
immunomodulatory therapies, steroids, and rituximab aid the control of autoimmune or inflammatory manifestations. However, we still need more data regarding hematopoietic stem cell transplantation in STK4 deficiency. The next article is Hematopoietic Cell Transplantation Rescues Inflammatory Bowel Disease and Dysbiosis of Gut Microbiota in XIAP Deficiency by Ono et al. What is already known about this topic? X-linked inhibitor of apoptosis protein, XIAP, deficiency, an inborn error of immunity, is often associated with refractory inflammatory bowel disease, and it can be cured only with allogenic hematopoietic cell transplantation. What does this article add to our knowledge? XIAP deficiency-associated inflammatory bowel disease is associated with the dysbiosis of the gut microbiota. Allogeneic hematopoietic cell transplantation was found to ameliorate gut inflammation and dysbiosis in patients with XIAP deficiency. How does this study impact current management guidelines? Refractory inflammatory bowel disease associated with XIAP deficiency can be rescued with allogeneic hematopoietic cell transplantation. The next article is Prevalence of POL-D1 Sensitization in Polistes Dominula Allergy and its Diagnostic Role in Vespid Double Positivity by Bilo et al. What is already known about this topic? Although Polistes venom allergy is common, diagnosis of primary sensitization versus Vespid cross-reactivity is challenged by the availability of only POL-D5 as a Polistes molecule in diagnostics. What does this article add to our knowledge? POL-D1 is the most frequent allergen in Polistes-sensitized patients, 97 to 100%. The diagnostic accuracy of POL-D1 is good for detecting primary sensitization in double-sensitized patients, area under the curve 87% to 99%. How does this study impact current management guidelines? POL-D1 can increase the diagnostic accuracy of Polistes primary sensitizations if implemented in clinical practice, reducing the use of cumbersome and expensive in vitro testing, that is, cap inhibition and basophil activation tests, and unnecessary double venom immunotherapies. The next article is the association of prenatal vitamin D sufficiency with aeroallergen sensitization and allergic rhinitis in early childhood by Chen et al. What is already known about this topic? Vitamin D has known immunomodulatory effects starting in utero. The role of prenatal vitamin D sufficiency in the development of childhood allergic rhinitis and aeroallergen sensitization is unclear. What does this article add to our knowledge? Prenatal vitamin D sufficiency in the third trimester and high-dose vitamin D supplementation may attenuate the risk for childhood allergic rhinitis and aeroallergen sensitization, especially among those with concurrent asthma or history of maternal atopy. How does this study impact current management guidelines? 
In populations with atopic risk, prenatal vitamin D supplementation may be beneficial in reducing offspring risk for allergic disease. Further studies on the prevention of allergic disease should consider the role of prenatal vitamin D. The last article is Defining the Allergic Endotype of Chronic Rhinosinusitis by Structured Histopathology and Clinical Variables by Brown et al. What is already known about this topic? An association exists between chronic rhinosinusitis and atopy. However, past studies have evaluated this link with conflicting results that could have been due to small sample sizes or not capturing and analyzing confounding factors. What does this article add to our knowledge? This study investigates the associations between atopy and several clinical and histopathologic variables in chronic rhinosinusitis in a comprehensive way using a statistical model. Our results demonstrate that atopy in chronic rhinosinusitis is significantly linked to certain sinus tissue pathologic features and associated with higher disease burden, patient-reported symptoms, and poorer quality of life. How does this study impact current management guidelines? Linking atopy and established metrics of chronic rhinosinusitis disease, including tissue eosinophilia and sinonasal outcome test and modified lung McKay scores, independent of nasal polyp and asthma diagnosis, positions allergic status as a clinical feature that can help identify chronic rhinosinusitis patients who may benefit from differential treatments. Thank you for listening to the highlights of the October 2021 issue of the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology in Practice. This is Michael Schatz, and I hope you find this issue beneficial for you and your patients.